Hi there, church. It's great to have you along this morning. Another beautiful day here in downtown Denver. We're glad that you've joined us in our series on counterculture. Uh, this morning we'll be in Colossians chapter 4, also a little bit in Ephesians 4. If you want to kind of just find those texts and mark them, we'll come right back to those and discuss together this morning. How would you characterize the talk and the communication of our culture right now? I'm not talking about the use of four-letter words or even taking the Lord's name in vain. I mean, when people are talking to and about other people, and particularly people they disagree with, what is the general tone of those kinds of conversations right now? What attitudes are prominent in the way our culture talks about other people and other people's ideas? What's our tone, as I said? What are some dominant things in the content of what we tend to be talking about as a culture right now? What does our body language say? And what are the effects that all of these forms of communication, whether they're verbal or whether they're written, are having on our culture in general? Now we are in the middle of this series on counterculture. We're talking about what it looks like to be followers of Jesus, people in apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth, and how we are called by him and by his first followers to live distinctively from the rest of the world, regardless of the culture that we find ourselves in. But I keep making this important point that just because I'm talking about being counterculture does not mean that we are against everything in culture. It does not mean that our general posture is one of being contentious or belligerent or argumentative, okay? We're, we're looking at this series as more of a positive call, an opportunity to embody the conviction and the compassion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So remember that being countercultural is also not an end in itself. I'm not talking about us being countercultural, ooh, just for the sake of being countercultural, you know, just being different for the sake of being different. And you know people like that. Um, being countercultural is not just a sneaky way of saying that we're right and everyone else is wrong. We're not saying that. That's not the point. The goal of being countercultural that I keep giving you is both doxological and it's missiological. Okay, doxa, glory, glorify. Our goal in being distinctively Christ-like is ultimately to bring glory to God, you know, to, to elevate his name, to magnify everything that he is and has done and promises to do. That is ultimately why we are seeking to be countercultural. And when I say missiological, I mean we're on a mission of making and maturing more followers of that Jesus. And the reason that we stand out and follow him, and I mean truly follow him in community, is so that we might have the greatest opportunity to reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. So a one simple way to practice this countercultural ethic of the kingdom of God that we're going to talk about this morning is how we communicate. And I mean that both in terms of how we talk and how we write. So Colossians 4, if you're there now, look with me at verses 5 and 6. 
The Apostle Paul writes, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. My longer title this morning is kind of like this, Five Tests for Talking to Culture. And my one big idea that I want to communicate this morning, if you leave with nothing else, make sure you grab this idea, is it's the call to speak truth and grace that exposes the futility of idols and creates an appetite for Christ. Truth and grace, exposing the emptiness of idols, whetting an appetite for Christ and the gospel. Okay, so test number one. These will all be T's. I think this is a helpful way of remembering it. Your first key word is the word true. So the test is, is what I'm about to say, is what I'm about to write, is it honest? Is this the truth? Okay, our culture is so often guilty of this one thing that so much of our communication is just dishonest and deceitful. That ultimately we want certain things and we want them so badly, we're willing to serve them so indiscriminately, we are willing to lie we're willing to create stories out of thin air that actually hurt other people, but forward the thing that we want. Paul also says in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, this is generally a principle for the Christian community, but it's certainly expandable to what we're doing in culture. And notice there's both a positive and a negative command. He says, negatively put away falsehood. Stop lying. Stop deceiving. But positively, because he's saying that's not enough just to not talk anymore. Okay, fine, I won't lie, but I won't talk. He calls us to a positive sharing of the truth. And this is important. As Christians, this is just not just another law that we obey. Like, okay, check the box. I told the truth today. And therefore, I'm a good person. No, truth is the essence of who God is. You know, Jesus is able to come and say, I am the truth. Okay, the spirit, the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to as the spirit of truth. <clears throat> so if we're following a God who is true, and the gospel is sometimes called the truth or the way. How much more important is it then that we make sure that our communications are characterized by truthfulness? Now, let me talk to you about some subtle ways that we lie because you may push back and say, well, you know, I'm not out there like just deliberately fooling people or deliberately lying to people. And that's good that you're probably not doing that as much. But here's, here's a handful of very subtle ways that we lie. How often do we intentionally deceive someone else without actually lying? You know, and I know people who are experts at this. They, they would actually, they would come back later and almost be proud of themselves for saying, like, I never actually said, you know, X, Y, Z. I never actually lied. No, but you intentionally left someone else with a disadvantaged and deceived position. Don't do that. What about when we cherry pick data? This is, this is uh, you know, our news cycle right now, or it has been for a long time. You cherry pick data 
and you leave out a bunch of true information. Now, you may be telling the truth, but by cherry-picking just certain points and sharing that almost as if it's the entire picture, you're creating uh, an intentional falsehood. You're not representing the truth, okay? What about silence? Do you know that sometimes just simply remaining silent and, you know, maybe nodding our head or something, that can be a way of lying or not telling the truth because you're going along with something. You're pretending like, yeah, yeah, you, you have it right when you know that they don't. Or here's another one, slandering someone's motives. And how often do we see that now where we may say, well, I didn't, I didn't lie, but I can tell that that person is just arrogant or proud or scared or this or that. And we've made an art form of undermining other people's integrity and the trust that other people have in them simply by slandering. Or, or one other thing like that I see all the time, especially with social media, is just simply sharing something without any verification. You know, you, you like a story, you like the point, ooh, this is a zinger, and you repost it, and just a little bit of research would have shown you, eh, this is not entirely true. I don't know that I want to represent myself by putting myself behind this story, okay? Now, along with those, let me just talk to you real quick about some logical fallacies, okay? Logical fallacies are other ways that we do not do the truth in a way that we are called to by God, um, but we may say, well, I, I didn't lie, but in essence, we did. So just a handful of these that are common in our culture today. One is this thing called the straw man. That's where you are in disagreement with someone else. You take their position. You express their position in terms that are easy for you to just knock over. And then you're like, see, I have the superior position. But if you were to talk to someone who actually espouses that particular position, they would say that that's not a very fair characterization of what I actually believe. That's certainly not the strongest point that I believe. So straw man. Uh, another one is false dilemma, or sometimes it's called the either or fallacy. And this is so common in our culture right now, where we say, you know, either you vote for Joe Biden or you believe in misogyny and racism and this and that, and you just list and you leave out this middle, you know, and maybe it's one position, maybe there's a hundred other positions, but you reduce it to either you're this or you're this. Either you believe this or you automatically believe this. And that's a way of being deceitful or not being honest with the truth. Another way of being deceitful is ad hominem. Probably you know this one, it's where you're just attacking the person. Rather than addressing the ideas being spoken of and saying, is this true, is this false? You just go straight after the person. There's this one called um, post hoc ergo propter hoc that basically means after that, therefore, because of that. You know, I saw one of these, I mean, literally in the news cycle last night where I was looking at, you know, 150,000 or something like that Americans dead from or with this pandemic virus and a loss of 32.9% of the GDP or something like that. And the article literally said, like due to you know Donald Trump's and the Republicans' policies, we have lost a third of our GDP in just a handful of months. After that, therefore, because of that. Well, that's a very complex thing. I don't know that anybody would honestly say it's because of those particular policies. 
Uh, most cultures, most economies in the world have been ransacked by a once in a hundred years pandemic. So let's be honest about that. You've got things like slippery slope, or sometimes it's called the domino effect or the domino theory, where if like, hey, if you take that one step toward this thing, it you know, knocks over the first domino and then all this other bad stuff is going to happen. Maybe so, maybe not. Um, circular argument where, you know, or begging the question where it's basically like, well, we need to get rid of dirty, filthy, toxic fossil fuels because they're hurting the environment. And it's like, well, make your point that they're dirty and filthy um, or make the point that they're hurting the environment. But you can't just argue this in a circle because that may be a way of obfuscating the truth. Okay. So be careful with logical fallacies. And by the way, I just want to say nobody's perfect with these things. It's so easy to make some of these mistakes. I'm just saying as followers of Jesus, let's be really cautious um, to pattern our lives after the truth that God has revealed and be careful to avoid these things when we can. Um, most of you know the, the familiar fable, Aesop's fable, the boy who cried wolf. And uh, the idea here is like this boy keeps saying, oh, there's a wolf and everybody comes out to protect him and there's no wolf. And he cries it again and again and again. And, and the point of that is when you make false or exaggerated claims, your subsequent truth claims are probably going to be ignored. And I just want us as believers to think, is this how you want to spend your capital basically with relationships and with your integrity and your believability um, to just throw away that shot, that opportunity and, uh, and to not be believed? You know, uh, one thing I see in culture right now is this, this question that I have, is it true that the American church is really being singled out for persecution right now. And I'm hearing that narrative, okay? Um, I'd just be very careful with that. Here in Denver, I often have two calls with the governor of Colorado every week, or you know, it's not every week, but many weeks. And the first of those calls is with the events industry. The second of those calls is with clergy. And I can tell you, because I'm on both of those calls, he's basically saying the same thing to both of those groups just a couple days apart. He's saying, look, you know, I'm not against your worship. I'm not against you even making disciples of your faith tradition, whatever that is. I'm not against you praying. I'm not against you reading the Bible. But there can't be any large meetings right now as a public health concern. You know, and as people who own an event center, um, I can tell you, that we have felt a massive impact there because we're not allowed to do anything. This is not a singling out of religion or church for some kind of special persecution. So let's be true and honest in what we're saying about those who lead us and what we're saying about people who may maybe disagree with us. Let's have a, a reputation for being careful with our words, for being specific with our words. Let's verify claims before we just pass them along indiscriminately. And if we do that, I believe that honors God, and I believe that gives us the greatest opportunity, the greatest footing then, to share good news that's good in part because it's true with our neighbors. So true. Second key word is the word thoughtful. Thoughtful. All right, is this, is this wise? Is this considerate? Is this the right timing? Again, Colossians 4, 5 says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. Um, so we're asking ourselves, um, 
Is this a timely, appropriate way to conduct myself in speech or in writing to someone who's not a part of the church right now? Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. And you know what I think Paul is pointing out, and this is so wise, that, that knowledge alone, he says elsewhere, it just puffs up. Knowledge and information and being a data nerd, it can make you, you know, a really toxic person. Okay, this is like the, you know, every seminary grad, basically. It's like you, you go to seminary, which is a good thing. I love seminary. But you, you start learning all this theological stuff that you've never heard before, and it can make you very proud. It can make you very arrogant. And you start talking down to other people and just dropping truth bombs left and right. And I know that there was a period of time when I was young that that felt like the right thing to do. It's knowledge and truth without this second point of thoughtfulness or wisdom. Okay, so God is calling us in these texts not to just like a bare naked truth telling, you know, just blowing people up. He's saying, tell the right truth at the right time. Be tactful, be winsome, be wise. Now, I've been in the room before with a dear friend when a, a doctor, a specialist, dropped just devastating news to this patient, to this friend, you know, while the spouse is on the phone en route to the hospital, rather than just saying, hey, this is maybe some scientific data or a range of scientific data I want to make my patient aware of, but is there a thoughtful way of doing that? And we even have a term for this. It's the doctor's bedside manner, that they're not just dropping truth bombs, that they're thoughtful, that they're winsome, they're wise about when they share, how they share. Um, you know, parents, you know that your kids are having nightmares, you know, at all different ages. They have different kinds of nightmares. And you would not simply, uh, you know, rebuke your child in the middle of the night for like, why do you fear? Why don't you just fear God and give them, a, you know, a, some esoteric explanation of the true nature of fear. Uh, you you hold them close and you're thoughtful with your words to encourage, okay? So just summarizing this point, thoughtful means we're asking ourselves, is this the right way to say this? I'm speaking the truth. Is this the right way? Is this the right time? Is this the right audience? You know, culturally, one of the things that concerns me is this thing I call whataboutism, where you're sharing a truth and someone's like, oh yeah, well, what about this other thing that makes me less uncomfortable to talk about? You know, back when I was speaking on um, race and just Christians being known for striving for justice and mercy for our neighbors and especially for our underprivileged or vulnerable neighbors. You know, no one in the church did this, but a bunch of people from outside the church were just inundating me with stuff of like, oh yeah, well, George Floyd, but what about his criminal record? And what about abortion? What about black on black crime? And what about this? What about absentee fathers in the minority community? Like, why don't you talk about that? And, and I'm thinking because to be truthful and to be thoughtful right now, People's hearts are broken over seeing a white officer kneel on the neck of a black man for nine minutes until he is deceased, okay? So yes, in a fuller conversation on race and justice and problem solving, we can talk about a lot of things, 
but is this thoughtful, is this wise, is this considerate right now? Let's be careful about that thing, what about ism, okay? True, thoughtful. Number three, tone. Tone. Is this gracious? Is this edifying? Is this gentle? Is this respectful? These are all questions we should be asking ourselves as we interact with and talk to and about culture. Again, Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, gracious means kind, means gentle, means um, not harsh. Ephesians 4.15 very simply says, speaking the truth in love. That's speaking to what you say and how you say it. Tone matters. Okay. By the way, this is true. Even when you're arguing for the truth of the gospel against falsehood, against error, listen to this, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Peter says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do even that, he says, with gentleness and respect. It's interesting in that particular, when it says prepared to make a defense, def make a defense is the word apologia from which we get our English word apologetics. Okay, apologetics is when you are making a reasoned, rational, maybe even impassioned defense of the truth, the veracity of the gospel, of orthodoxy, okay? It's important to do that. But he's saying even when you are taking a stand for the truth, even when you are arguing and contending for the faith, there is this tone of, I still respect people who disagree with me. You know who is awesome at this? Is Robbie Zacharias, who recently passed away. And I think one of the reasons that so many people were drawn to his speaking is because not only was he a brilliant intellect, a scholar of the word of God, of history, of science, of um, sociology, but his tone was just always so gracious and gentle and humble and wise, okay? And I think too often believers have the opposite reputation. We have a, we have a reputation for being angry, for being judgmental, for being self-righteous and arrogant, and we're, we're know-it-alls. We speak with ridicule and mockery and just put down people who disagree with us, rather than having this tone where we say, look, I, I disagree with your policy statement, but I care about you, and that comes through in tone. Um, by the way, what will help you do this is what we talked about last week, where you learn to discover the stories that are behind or beneath culture. What are the fears? What are the hopes? What are the heroes and villains that this person or this group have that are leading to these external kind of superficial manifestations of things that I disagree with? But if I understand those things, I can see, you know, hey, I have some of the same fears, I can certainly empathize with that and speak the truth and contend for the truth, but in a tone that expresses love and concern. Fourthly, the fourth test of communication is, uh, this is a two-word one, but, but it's two-sided. Okay, it's two-sided. In other words, there's an element of critique, but there's probably also an element of commendation. And I think it's important that, yes, as believers contend for the truth, and we should contend for the truth, we should point out the futility, the falsehood of idols, uh, of, of narratives that just lie to people and destroy their lives. We need to learn to speak with both sides. 
Okay. Colossians 4, 6 says again, you ought to know how to answer each person. That implies there are different answers being given to different people. Okay. Um, sometimes you answer a person with affirmation or agreement. You find common ground, and that's where you're starting off. Other times, maybe you are offering an apologetic or an argument or something better than what they've just said they believe or they hope or they value. Okay, um, But I think you see this balance in Jesus and the apostles. They weren't contentious culture haters, just down with that and down with that. They affirmed, they appreciated, they enjoyed what they could. They built common ground. They built on common ground. They were positive and grateful so often. But they also loved people enough to confront the false narratives that people were building their lives on. Okay? They warned. They rebuked. They challenged people to forsake those things. These are all good. Okay? Some Christians are all truth and no grace. So I, I just call them how I see them. Yeah, you do. And you're missing this two-sided, it's both tone, but also words. We need to find the balance here as well. By the way, I'm not urging you to be all grace and no truth. I'm saying there's this balance. Ephesians 4.29 again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion. Sometimes when you're building up, when you're edifying, when you're encouraging, that sounds like a certain kind of speech. Again, like an affirmation, a comment, this is good. Sometimes it sounds like, hey, I love you enough to, I, I got to push back on this thing. Like, do you see how this thing that you love, that you hold so dearly, is actually hurting you? You know, so a cultural illustration of that, maybe you look at the, the movement, Black Lives Matter, and you would say something like, I can't agree with every line item of your agenda as a disciple of Jesus, okay? You, you are in conflict there. At the same time that I disagree with you, I hear in your words, I hear in your spirit, a desire for some things that are good, like equity and equality, like justice for the oppressed, okay? So I really respect this about you. Um, this I'm concerned about, but you know what? Like, why don't you and I get together for lunch? And I'd love to hear more about where, where does your own empathy come from? Your desire to see equality and justice for all, um, where does that come from? Who taught you to believe that way, because I'd love to hear more about that. And see, what you're doing is you're speaking two-sided. Here's what I can affirm. Here's what I can't. Um, but we can have a conversation and offer something better rather than just being, bam, like you're wrong and I'm right. And now let's have a conversation on that basis, which just doesn't work, doesn't honor God. It's not It's not doxological. It's not missiological, okay? Um Okay, going on here to the last one, and I think this, in a way, along with truth, obviously, oh, this is all very important, but this last one is so important. And that is that our speech, our communication, be thirst-inducing. So Colossians 4, 5, and 6, one more time. Colossians 4, 5, and 6, look back there. He says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious Season with salt so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. Okay, Here, here's what's important. Salt not only seasons things and 
you know, brings out the best flavors in kind of a bunch of different kinds of foods. And it does that. And it's important to think of how would I use my speech, my communications that way, where it kind of brings out the best of everything, just seasoning it. But, but salt also, especially in large quantities, it does what? It makes you thirsty. It makes you thirsty for something like this that refreshes you for clear water, okay? And my question is, do your interactions with people in culture, do they leave them hungering and thirsting for more of Jesus? For the good news, the hope, the grace, the truth of the gospel, because that's what our conversations are ultimately about, right? The conversation is not about me proving myself right. The conversation is not about me appearing to be highly intellectual. The, the, the point is not just drowning out other voices that we disagree with. The point is not boasting. The point is to simply whet other people's appetite for the life-giving, all-satisfying water of Jesus Christ. Okay. Do we talk about what's going on in culture in a way that reveals the gospel's indispensable relevance to the deepest longings that people are experiencing? I fear so often we see what's going on in different movements. And again, if you, if you tend to be, you know, and I hate these terms, but if you tend to be on the left and you judge kind of, you know, alt-right and look, QAnon, there's crazy stuff going on here. Trump is just a disaster. Or you're on the right and you're like, you know, the leftist movement and Marxism and it's just Black Lives Matter. It's just all horrible. And it's but th th that gets us nowhere. That is not whetting people's appetite for the gospel and for Jesus. But what if we looked at each of those things and said, ah, you, you want equality, but on what basis do you want that? as you believe this you know, evolutionary theory or these other things. You, you want to believe in this concept of natural rights or, you know, and there's any number of things that we can look at and say, let me show you how the timeless gospel of Jesus goes right straight to that longing that you have and it satisfies it. It is not like an idol that promises to satisfy it, but then leaves you hungry and thirsty for more because it betrayed you, it lied to you. How are we using our words to show that idols are dead ends and that Christ is the answer? 1 Peter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that old Greek word that we have here translated conduct doesn't just mean your, your actions. It means your whole lifestyle, including the 15,000 or so words that you speak every day. He's saying, keep all your words among the Gentiles honorable so that, what? So that even if they slander you, they see something, they hear something that has drawn them to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think we could easily go to some people, even that we disagree with right now, and say, listen, your desire for restorative justice is a really beautiful thing. And even if I disagree with some ways that you're going about that, some of your mannerisms, some of your tactics or strategies, uh, wh where does that desire for restorative justice come from? Not, not just retributive justice of like, let's quash them, let's punish them, but, but this restorative thing of like, look, these people, these groups have been harmed. How do we make that right? Because... 
can I tell you a story from my own faith tradition and share with you that Jesus of Nazareth, like the reason why he comes into the world is to, to save the world from our own unrighteousness, from our own injustice that we've committed against other people. But he doesn't just forgive our sins and right our own personal wrongs. He actually says, I'm going to come again one day and make all things new. So where all things have been harmed by sin, by brokenness, by the fall, by things that you may term evil, and maybe they are, I'm going to restore even that. By the way, that's why Christians are interested in this world. Salvation is not an evacuation plan where we're like, well, sorry about the injustice, just don't care. You know, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And we say, if Jesus promises to come again and restore all things and make all things new, and I don't think any of us know exactly what that's going to look like. But if he promises to do that, and if that's a central tenet of our faith, then we can have conversations like this, of, man, restorative justice, equality, liberty. You want some really beautiful things. And, and can, I, can I show you how what you want is ultimately met in Christ? Okay, and I'm talking about balance, right? Grace and truth conviction and compassion, challenging culture and commending culture. And friends, this is so rare, but what an opportunity we have to be countercultural in the way that we use our words, whether again, we're sitting at a keyboard, we're typing something in anger, frustration, and we say, nope, does that accomplish my goal in life of glorifying God and helping others enjoy him forever, or does it not? So once again, that one big idea, speak truth and grace that exposes the futility of idols and creates an appetite for Jesus Christ.